this is Jay, and I'm joined by my co-host Colin. Uh, this week on the Loins of History, we're going to be discussing the information war, particularly with regards to Russia and Ukraine. Uh, this is episode four in our very first series on the Russia-Ukraine war. And starting off, uh, Colin is going to give us an update on where we're at. Thanks, Jay. So a lot has happened over the past week uh, with the Russian-Ukraine conflict. I just want to give an update on that. So uh, the past couple of days, Russia has uh, cut off and reduced gas flow to five major powers in, in Europe, Germany, Italy, the Czech Republic, Slovakia, and Austria. And it's actually caused a so much of a shortage in Germany, they've had to restart some of their coal plants in order to uh, make up the gap in energy production. So it's a really big deal, you know, f um, causing the gas prices across Europe and then really the world to increase, which is part of, I think, Putin's um, larger plan um, and strategic initiative in order to cripple NATO countries um, in this conflict. Um, in other news, the Russian proxy forces captured a small town uh, called Toshkiva, and that is significant because um, that is on the western banks of the Seversky Donets River, uh, south of, and I'm going to butcher this pronunciation, but Severodonetsk. Um, so the NATO believes that the Russians are trying to um, fortify and strengthen their positions in the east and the south of Ukraine, um, which now NATO believes it'll probably be um, a long, drawn-out conflict rather than the short uh, war that they initially thought. So this could last years, um, one NATO leader believes. Um, and it's estimated to cost potentially a tr upwards of a trillion dollars um, in order to successfully um, fund the Ukrainian defense so speaking of Russians fortifying the positions in the south of Ukraine, um, the blockade in the Black Sea has essentially cut off uh, Ukrainian grain exports, which, as you know, Ukraine is the breadbasket of Europe. So they produce a lot of grain that is exported to uh, countries in Africa, the Middle East, and even the rest of Europe. So what they're trying to do um, is make up that uh, by shipping through Poland and the Danube, but um, you know, currently the Danube just can't support the love, the volume of exports that the Black Sea could. So um, they're only at about a quarter of production. I think they normally do about six million tons a month, um, and right now they're between one and two um, million tons per month. So huge shortage uh, when it comes to grain. Um, and I think this is really the most important. Uh, news to come out of the past week. So Putin made some some very interesting comments um, to um, really, he was, I think his audience, he had a small audience around him, but it was really aimed at the West. So at the St. Petersburg International Economic Forum, um, he, and I'm paraphrasing here, but he basically said that um, the U.S. and NATO's power and hegemony is over. He is essentially trying to create a counter to the U.S., so another polar power um, that is uh, opposed to the U.S. So, And his comments 
to the um, St. Petersburg International Economic Forum just kind of echoed that, what we already assumed. But now he's he's out loud and he's coming out and saying it. And then in another one, he said to a small group of entrepreneurs, he basically came out and said, um, he compared himself to Peter the Great. So Peter the Great, one of the most important, if not the most important uh, leader in Russian history. And he argued that Russia is not conquering, but fighting over territory that rightfully belonged to Russia. Um, you know, and this is a direct quote from him. Why did he said Peter every the Great, conqueror ever? <laughs> exactly. He's and what he's trying to do is he's trying he's trying to legitimize his action. And this is his his quote. Why did he Peter the Great go there? Putin asked. He took back and fortified. And it looks like our fate is to take back and fortify too. If we're going to assume that these basic values form the basis of our existence, then we will succeed in the solution of the tasks that lie ahead. Really bold statement right there. And, and Jay, to what you talked about last week, where this is what Russians do, they conquer, they annex, they you're part of Russia now. That's exactly what they're planning to do. And, and to him and what he's saying, this He's basically telling the West what he's going to do, and he's telling his people why he's going to do it to legitimize it. They're, we're taking it back. They are us. They are Slavs. They are, we are one people. They're just a, a little brother that's gotten lost, and we want to protect them, bring them back into our fold. And um, I think a lot of Russians are buying into that, and that's, that's – so he's – it's very important because that's what he's going to do. It's it's just amazing that he's telegraphing it and we can see it right there in these comments, understanding the, the Russian identity and his motivations behind the statement like this. So um, that's pretty much what I had for the news updates. Um, I did want to make a point that this is – a great segue into information warfare because, um, you know, here you have a leader of a country in Russia who is speaking not only directly with comments like this directly to his people, but he's speaking directly to everyone in the world. I mean, I got, I pulled this from CNN. So every American pretty much has access to this. We, I just pulled this from a quick search on the internet and no point in history was a leader or king or, or whomever able to speak directly to not just their populace always, but another country's, especially one that they're in direct conflict with. Um, so he is trying to shape the narrative, um, you know, which ultimately affected the battle space um, of information warfare. And that's part of information warfare. And we're going to talk a lot about that today. So that's it for the update. Jay, do you have anything to add on that? Yeah, the... Thanks for the update. And I think you're right. Like Putin is trying to control a narrative here and he's, he's doing so with tools that have never been before or only recently been available to leaders trying to cough, cough, conquer territory. <laughs> uh you know, like controlling a narrative is not necessarily a new thing, but the way in which we do that, and to your point, like a hundred years ago, we would have never known what the, the leader of Russia was thinking and doing, but for him to say that uh, so publicly, it's, it's interesting. So yeah, about to delve into well, the depths of that. Exactly. So, you know, we're talking about information warfare and in this conflict, it has we're really seeing, I think, the culmination of technology and all of this globalization um, 
coalesce into this crazy, you know, social, you know, war that's being fought on so many different fronts. You know, we think the traditional battle space is the Russian, it's Ukraine. But, you know, if you go onto any social media page, there is Twitter on both sides. There's Russian bots. There's Ukrainian bots. There's, you've got legacy media. You've got talking heads. You've got everybody formulating opinions. And it's almost impossible to figure out what's really going on. And um, Dan, and so it's important to get a definition of what information warfare really is to, to see what we're trying to talk about here. So, And doing some research on this, there are a lot of varied definition of information warfare. I know the military is trying to, and the DOD is trying to form a, a tight uh, definition, but I pulled one um, and it's a very simple definition. So Dan Cool of the National Defense University said, uh, conf- information warfare is a conflict or struggle between two or more groups in the information environment. So that's kind of vague. But then if you couple that with this, is I pulled from NATO, um, information warfare is an operation conducted in order to gain an information advantage over the opponent. It consists of controlling one's own information space, protecting access to one's own information while acquiring and using the opponent's information, destroying their information systems, and disrupting the information flow. Information warfare is not a new phenomenon, yet it contains innovative elements as the effect of technological development, uh, which results in information being disseminated faster and on a larger scale. Like I said, social media, it's just the technology that we have. We're finding out real time what's going on over there. So those are some definitions of what it is. Um, you know, Jay, what do you think of those definitions? Uh, it is, I think one reason why it's so hard to define information warfare is information is like, everything (laughs) like everything has an informational aspect like personally i i'm super dissatisfied with the majority of conversations regarding information because it seems to be hyper focused on the internet and -hmm. the problem with that is while the internet is a significant source of information it's actually the minority source of information and if you just think of how human beings collect information uh, you know, we have five senses, like all of that are information collection things, right? The, th- the two things that I see with my, my eyes, uh, or the things that I see with my two eyes are giving me <laughs> not the two things that I see. <laughs> yeah. The things that I see with my two eyes give me information, right? The things that we talk about and we hear about with our, with our friends and our colleagues and our families, those give us information. The internet is just, you know, the most expansive, but like in, in a human being's day-to-day experience, we don't have, unless you're living in the metaverse, the internet is not the primary source of our information. Just give uh, it five years. We'll be there. Yeah. Uh, and, the, and the point I'm trying to make with that is it's, it's difficult to discuss information warfare because when we talk about, you know, in kind of that second definition you read, when we talk about controlling the information, they're usually talking about the internet. And the problem with that is there are many other ways to affect the information space, particularly when it gar- regards to your adversary, uh, you know, from a, uh, from a, a conflict standpoint, uh, than just the internet. Uh, 
for example, the, I think the term information warfare became really big in World War II. What OSS mm-hmm. was doing, what you know KGB was doing, we'll talk about that here in a second. But prob- one of the primary means of doing that was the radio, right? Like, we're going to put, you know, radio-free Europe. Well, I'm sure we'll discuss that here in a little bit with the CIA stuff. But that's absolutely information warfare, and that was pre-internet. Now, you, you, Jay, you, you bring up, a, and this is a, a bit of a segue, and I don't want to get off topic here, but, you know, to your point about the, the, the senses, you can't bludgeon somebody over the head with information and just facts and get them to believe something or convince them. It's it's this weird um, effect where people will actually like dig in, you know, to quote, uh, it's always sunny in Philadelphia. I'm an American and I'm, I'm dug in and I'll never change. <laughs> it's, you know, it, if you, somebody's, you know, typically on the internet, we're going to look at what we want to look at and what we already believe. And it's going to, con- you know, you hear the term confirmation bias. We want to see those mm-hmm. things and it's just going to reinforce it. And when we're faced with, you know, some other fact, we're going to, you know, kind of be resistant to that. But when you said the FDR would have his fireside chats, he was speaking directly to the American people and hearing his voice had an effect on people at an emotional level and it affected mm-hmm. them and it raised his, mm-hmm. per, his popularity. You know, when we talk about it, it, or even like when JFK and Nixon were having their debates, the people would see Nixon on TV and they were like, boy, he looks bad. Because he yeah. didn't wear, he didn't have a good, you know. But JFK was this young guy, and they formed an opinion completely apart from what they were being told. It was almost completely the, you know, wow, it's the halo effect. So, yes, just seeing this information on the internet is not necessarily going to alter people's minds. There's so much more to information warfare, and that's really where people start to, you know turn up the manipulation or change. I think it's some of those subtle areas that people don't necessarily look at. Um, and, and we'll get more into that. So, you know, looking back at historical examples and the evolution of information warfare, I tend, uh, I personally believe that, you know, information was constrained by the times, the technology of the times 2000 years ago, or a thousand years ago, you just didn't really know what was going on. If you were a serf in medieval England, you had no idea what was happening on the other side of the world. You might get a report or hear some rumor from somebody that, you know, happened to come from there, but by and large, you just didn't know what was happening. So I think that as for leaders of those countries, they didn't necessarily have to worry so much about, um, well, um, there's this, the French are coming in and they're, you know, they're spreading fake news around about the the hundred years war and it's altering. I have to address this. I, I just don't think it had a massive, um, strategic value. Now there were, it, I'm not saying no strategic value. I just say little because there were spies that were collecting information that were trying to, um, subvert some decisions and kind of alter, you know, um, other leaders. So that did exist. But I, it just wasn't as big now. And, you know, I think the exception that you'll probably bring up is the Mongols because uh, they definitely used information to their advantage. Yeah, you know, there's a lot of research that talks about the Mongols were probably not these massive hordes that uh, just cut down everyone in their path. 
they probably only did that a few times or I should yes. say a few times, less times than what was recorded. <laughs> they did it uh, a lot. Yeah. They, uh, they did so much killing. They affected the, uh, the, this global CO2 level. So they, they did a lot of killing. Oh, that's awesome. I didn't know that. <laughs> I mean, it's not awesome, but you know what I mean? It's an incredible the, uh, fact. Right. But like they were able to conquer cities without bloodshed because they would just like send messengers or they would send survivors from the last time they massacred a people and they would say like, okay, you can surrender or this is going to happen to you. And there's quite a few examples of where that happened. That's a form of information warfare where you're, you're securing your objective, uh, uh, without, without any other means. Another thing, not just the Mongols that I was thinking about was the Crusades. You know, mm-hmm. the Mongols is an example of, uh, you know, influencing your adversary to do what you want. But the Crusades, especially like the first, second, and third, are really good examples of mobilizing your own populace. And in that instance, the Pope, you know, going around and, uh, you know, giving these sermons in Europe that would get everybody all juiced up and it got all the leaders, you know, a lot of the leaders in Europe all juiced up so much so to the point that they literally like strolled down to the Middle East and conquered a bunch of territory. <laughs> to, to that point, you know, Pope Urban did spend, he spent a lot of time crafting letters that were going to go out to the leaders of Europe. You know, he spent a lot of time basically trying to convince them that like, Hey, this, this kind of killing is, is not going to send you to hell. And he had to figure out how to do that and get them to go. And it had such a profound effect that yes, he mobilized nations. He, it was the first real international coalition, if you think about it, because it was all these nations operating under their own flags, working together, putting aside some historical differences and going to fight. So it was very effective. And even now, some of the downside to that was like the, you know, what was it? The, um, the peasants crusade. I think that's what it's called, but yeah, you basically had these peasants going off and just without a King or a leader, just going off and trying to fight. And it ended very badly for them. They, most of them starved. When you attempt to control the information environment, you very quickly learn that you can't perfectly and there's quite often collateral damage. And when, you know, in the Crusades, when you start juicing up the, the populace to go to war, you might get people who are willing to go to war who are not quite the people that you want, i.e. children, and two, not exactly doing the things that you want them to do, like children. And <laughs> or when or we go on a pogrom. Yes. Oh, dude, uh, we're going to... We're going to get there about, you know, Russian anti-Semitism and how that, you know, impacts an information war. But the, in the same way for Russia or the Ukrainians, right? Like this whole ghost of Kiev thing, like that got everybody all juiced up and it was completely fake. And there was one of the collateral effects of that whole circumstance is that uh, you lose a lot of credibility. And people may not do what you want them to do. Uh, you know, I think when it came out that that was fake news, people may have like, oh, the Ukrainians are a bunch of liars. But anyway. You know, I think after, boy, I hate to change my mind in a podcast, but I'm going to modify my previous <laughs> statement. <clears throat> you know, I'm still going to say that there was, it was less 
important. It was more limited in scope, the information warfare that was fought. I mean, we talked about the Crusades, the Mongols. Those are those are events that really, truly shaped history in these massive events. They were just huge on, right. on a global scale. Maybe information warfare had a part to play there. I'm thinking it was still kind of limited in that it was definitely leaders and what they were able to do was, you know, they didn't have the technology. They didn't have the means to communicate like they can now. Um, and those were, it was really saved for extraordinary events. Your average everyday person was probably less affected by it. So I'm going to, I'm going to go with my final answer is limited compared to what it is today. Um, I don't know that I just, you know, no, with the I, technology. Yeah. Sorry. Go ahead. No, I think you have a point, and I would agree that the character of information and how it impacts conflict today has definitely changed. I mean, it's it's misleading to say that, ah, it's just, it's the same. I think it's a continuation of the same thread, but the internet has, has revolutionized how information is controlled and propagated in today's um in today's world. So the maybe one of those, like the nature versus the character type deal, like the nature of information war is still the same, but the character, how it gets expressed in today's is, is definitely changed. It's a great way to put it, Jay. I, I like that. So we're going to go with that. And, and along the lines of continuing the evolution of it, there's a few points in American history regarding information warfare. And the first is, the Alien Sedition Acts, you know, there's a, a couple acts, I think, that were passed, I think it was four total um, in the fledgling United States um, in the late 1790s. Um, you know, and really what their aim was, was for this Congress, which was, uh, to be honest, I think fledgling is the best way to put it. They were... There were threats still from the British. They had just signed the Jay Treaty, so they had improved relations with the English, but now we had hurt relations with the French. Um, they were still on a precipice where they could be taken back over, and they were trying to preserve the Union. So I believe that they were these were acts that were passed that they felt like they could control narratives and really bring back um, influential people, bring them into line. So if they felt like they were saying something that was would get them into a conflict or um, cause the masses to potentially do something that, you know, or believe something that they didn't want, they had a means to rectify that and to, to correct. I don't necessarily think it was a this massive conspiracy to as a power grab or anything like that. I think it was some congressmen were very worried in the early United States that if we allow disinformation or some sort of um, foreign agent, quote unquote, to come in and influence the United States, like we may not make it. So, and I say all that because, you know, history doesn't necessarily repeat, but it does rhyme. Um, and we're starting to see things like that kind of pop up again with these disinformation boards and the U.S. government is, is um, you know, there's a lot of talk about how we're going to handle disinformation in these foreign actors. And I think there's some rhyme right there with um, what they're trying to do. Yeah, no. And, and to be honest, one reason why I think free speech is so important is I understand the motivation behind 
you know, trying to keep disinformation out. It's a, it's a great intent. The, it is a problem. However, the best way to counter disinformation is not necessarily, and I'm sure this is, I'm not, I'm overgeneralizing, right? But generally speaking, the best way to counter disinformation is through the truth, not necessarily suppressing the information. And, it, yeah, and it's yeah. in the only other point I'd like to make is it's important to remember these alien and sedition acts aren't remembered well in history. Like no. they were one more nail in the remember, coffin. They weren't popular at the time. You know, right. They were not popular. Even then when people were like, man, we may not make it as a country, even then they were not popular. And yeah, I mean, that's a great way to put it. It's almost like if you tell, it's like when you tell a kid you can't do something, they want to do it more. It's like if you say, yeah. no, this is disinformation, you're not allowed to hear that. Most people are like, well, great. Now, hey, it's a conspiracy. Now I believe it. it. You can't do that. If you want to defeat it, just say, okay, well, hey, here's the truth. Here's more information that yeah. you know either affirm, you know, confirms or you know disproves. So yeah, great, yeah. great point. And yeah, we're starting to see that now. And it's it's becoming a real problem. And you're right. That's why free speech is so important. People have to be able to communicate with each other um, to prevent, um, you know, disinformation from taking hold and being thought of as truth. Um, yeah. You know, and people want the truth. Like, I think there's a lot of people out there who are emotionally compelled to believe things that are false, but it's still like human beings don't want to be lied to. So it's it's best if we can put the truth out there and instead of just suppressing dissent. That's probably a different yeah. podcast episode. <laughs> that, yeah, God, we got to get into another series on that. But, you know, and then, you know, fast forward a uh, hundred or so years, um, you know, right now, obviously everyone, you know, fake news is like, a, it's a new coin term that, that yeah. our boy Donald Trump, he, he, you, you uh, are he made popular. News. That was more Arnold Schwarzenegger. That's, I was going to say that. That sounds Schwarzenegger. <laughs> we'll have to get a sound clip or something. But, um, you know, yellow journalism is something that was essentially fake news. Um, you know, this was really made popular by William Randolph Hearst and Joseph Pulitzer basically competing with each other to sell newspapers by making these sensationalized claims. Um, you know, a lot of people, you know, blame them for starting the Spanish American war. Um, you know, they just kept coming up with these, it was like, they just competed headline after headline. Okay. Mine's got to be more sensationalized. And they were, um, you know, centered in New York and I think San Francisco. So opposite coast, but you know, they really, so did they cause the Spanish civil war or a Spanish American war? Eh, debatable, but you got to believe that they made it popular and, you know, maybe some opportunistic government uh, officials said, maybe this is how we can exploit this fervor, this anti-Spanish fervor uh, in our favor. Right. It's, I think it's important for our listeners to, to know um, the media is absolutely a significant part of information war. Mm -hmm. And you know, here in the United States, kind of like what we mentioned in our last episode, here in the United States, we can't, it's illegal to try to, uh, like we have a free press, right? Therefore, the press, their primary concern is to make money. And this is not a new thing. This isn't, 
oh, you know, legacy media, they're inherently corrupt. It's like, mm, they've always wanted to make money. That's how capitalism <laughs> works. And there, and honestly, there's nothing wrong with that. The problem that people have to be aware of, or I guess that's really what I'm trying to say. The problem is that people aren't aware of that fact. They tend to mm-hmm. forget it. And they also don't understand, uh, or we also have a hard time understanding that what makes money is conflict, confrontation, sensationalization, like things. Did I just make up that word? Sensationalizing something, right? I don't know. Uh, That's a good word. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Making something a big breaking news, right? Uh, This is what gets people to tune in, click, buy your newspaper, et cetera. And when some, a significant event like the explosion of the USS Maine, that gets hyped up, not because the newspaper necessarily has nefarious purposes, but rather that's what's going to sell the newspapers. That's a, that's a great point. It, it's a great point. It, the me, this is not a new phenomenon. That, that's what no. you should take away. This is not a new phenomenon. Yeah. CNN, yeah. Fox News, they are just doing what we've all, what the media has always done. Yeah. <laughs> they and that's, got I to think sell. That's, that's, that's one of the main reasons why we're doing this podcast. Like it just to explain like the loins of history. It is over and over again. We see that what's going on today was contained within, you know, quote unquote, the loins of history. Right. And it sprouted. It's modern expression from the loins of history. It, it came forth. It issued forth from, from the loins of history. <laughs> issued forth. Great way, <laughs> great way to put it. Yeah. Like, it is, it's not new and it's because America, or I won't say Americans, although we're probably worse than a lot of other people with regards to, we can speak history. as Americans, <laughs> as Americans speaking for my people here. I love America, by the way. <laughs> I, I, sometimes my, I get critical, but anyway, point being is that we don't understand our own history and therefore we don't really understand what's going on today. And when it comes to, you know, again, bringing this back to Russia, Ukraine, and Twitter, there I think the Russians, and maybe this is a good caveat to how they did information war in the in the twentieth century, but they I think that at least their government has a much better understanding of how information works, and uh, they've been using it as a tool to suit their purposes pretty well. It's interesting to see that we didn't really have much of a presence in the information um, space prior to World War II. After the Spanish-American War, um, in World War I, we <clears throat> formed, there's a few committees that were formed to investigate um, pro-German, pro-communist sentiment within the United States. Um, and eventually that for- became what's known as the House Un-American Activities Committee. Um, somewhat infamous because it led to a lot of wild speculation and it became very unpopular decades later. But um, initially this is formed um, or, you know, it, it started out as the McCormick Dickinson, Dickstein committee, excuse me. Um, And they were basically investigating subversive propaganda. So communist propaganda. Um, And that later became the Dyes Committee. So that was the, the HUAC, so the House Un-American Activities Committee. It was known as the Dyes Committee because Martin Dyes Jr. was the chair. This committee really started looking into 
Nazi um, sentiment, and then it morphed into communist sentiment. So any of these different um, organizations, so like one of the famous ones was Hollywood. There was the something called the Federal Theater Project, which was um, basically a federally funded organization that would um, give money to unemployed actors, actresses, um, theater, local theaters, so that they could um, earn money and put on plays. And uh, the Dyes Committee absolutely invent- investigated them because they believed that the communists had infiltrated that organization and was spreading communist propaganda. This is really important, and I definitely recommend for the listeners to go through and research a lot of um, the hearings and who they investigated. We'll touch on a lot of it, but I want to make the point that this is really important because this is one of the first times the United States government said, okay, there is a proliferation of information that we don't like and that is um, un-American, and we are going to control that. We are going to try and control the information. If you go back to the the def, one of the definitions of information warfare, it's it's internal as well. So you have to control the information that's being said within your own borders. And this is an example of that. So the HUAC, they investigated, or they had uh, Haley Flanagan, the head of the, the Federal Theater Project, which is basically like government money for unemployed actors and actresses to, to put on shows and things like that. And they investigated them. Um, they investigated um, internment of Japanese Americans. There was some... Um, you know, different anti-Semitic um, investigations that occurred. Um, so, but this is really the point at which we start doing that. Um, and the U.S. government says, okay, we need to take control of this, and this is the way that they did it. The HUAC is complex, and one of the difficulties is its close proximity to just McCarthyism in general, which and, Joseph McCarthy was never part of the HUAC, so keep that in mind. Right. And we're going to get to McCarthy right. in a minute. McCarthy took what was more or less a valid thing. And what I mean by that was uh, there were, in fact, Soviet agents in the U.S. government. And the two most notable ones uh, with regards to HUAC are Whitaker Chambers and Alger Hiss. There is a fantastic book that I've recommended to Colin before, and I'll recommend it to our listeners now, called Stalin's Secret Agents, written by Herb Romerstein and uh, M. Stanton Evans, that is a really, really good overview of how the Soviets penetrated the U.S. government, particularly the Roosevelt administration, uh, and... You know, Alger Hiss and Whitaker Chambers were were Russian agents working in the U.S. government at the time. The problem is that later on, Joseph McCarthy, Senator Joseph McCarthy, who is not a member of HUAC, uh, you know, took took this problem and began using it towards more nefarious partisan purposes, uh, i.e., and and we still see this today, like using oh you're uh you're working or you're influenced by a russian government you need we need to not elect you and it's like you know if you've got hard evidence that that's the case that that should be a talking point for the fbi <laughs> not necessarily like you're a you're a political appointment now 
I, I get it. You know, sometimes it's true. Sometimes it's not. I'm not trying to say ignore everything, but like that was ultimately what led to the downfall of McCarthy was that a lot of the stuff that he was saying, he had no evidence for whatsoever. And it's unfortunate because there were in fact Soviet agents in the U S government. There were in fact members, members of Congress who were being influenced. Go ahead. Colin. So if, if, I was going to say, if you read through, you know, the HUAC and McCarthy and, and so if you read through some of the hearings, like they investigated Hollywood as well, there's the Hollywood blacklist. I think it was a lot of, okay, we know something's up. We have heard rumors. There's some like fringe evidence of communist sentiment of communist agents that have infiltrated different parts of, we'll say not just the U.S. government, but society at large. So we're just going to start throwing together and just do something. So I think that was what the HUAC was. It was a response to some of this nerves of U.S. government officials of, Okay, we can't lose control here. We have to maintain control. The communists are the enemy. Um, they are really well organized and really well hidden. We know they're there, but we have to abide. But we have to figure out something to combat it. And you know, with the Hollywood blacklist, they basically ruined the careers of a lot of different people in Hollywood who never really regained their fame. Um, and a lot of it was just basically hearsay and accusations that were never really proven actually never proven in general. So right. that's kind of the danger to it of, of these committees where maybe there is some evidence there was, you know, looking back now we've figured out that there were, but you just have this committee going through and they're just on a witch hunt and they know something's up. They just go on a witch hunt. So looking at it now, okay, we can have a disinformation board of a committee and it's basically like, hey, you said something I didn't like or you are associated with this. Um, I'm going to blacklist you and ruin your career. So like, that's the danger of a committee like this um, if we're not careful and have a lot of oversight. Eventually the HUAC, uh, I think it changed its name sometime in Vietnam and by 1975, it was, it was absorbed by the Department of Justice. So and it became something else entirely. It lost all its teeth, but it became increasingly unpopular with the American people because it, it was just a, it was a farce. It was a witch hunt. I think there were two people, I can't remember their names, but um, you know, during their hearings, they basically showed up. I think one of them wore a Santa Claus outfit and the other one came as like a colonial patriot just to almost to oh, kind wow. of show that it was a kangaroo court. Yeah. I mean, they're like, okay, like, what are you going to do? You're going to, we get it. You're going to accuse me of being a communist and anti-American and anything I say is going to be thrown out. So it was just a kangaroo court at that point, And it lost a lot of its popularity for that. So, you know, bottom line with the HUAC, I, I think personally, it was like the alien sedition acts, kind of this good intent, but really poorly executed. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then speaking of Joseph McCarthy, you know, he was made famous in, uh, was it Wheeling, West Virginia? He just held up a piece of paper. I have 200 names of, you know, known communists oh, yeah. in the U.S. government. And, you know, then the Washington Post picked it up and, you know, that was his fame. And I think I read um, some, I think it was like Truman's Library Archives that they basically hated each other. And I thought this was really funny. Um, Truman called him the Kremlin's greatest asset. And it, you know, we're talking about history repeating itself. Like they were yeah. accusing each other of basically either being too soft on Russia or being a Russian asset. That was 70 years ago. Right. And we're hearing it again. You know, Donald Trump's a Russian asset. Oh, you're being too soft on Russia. You're, you, it, it's the same thing. Seven years later, 
It's the exact yeah. same thing, quite literally. Only yeah. one of them was the Soviet Union. Now one of them is Russia. I just find that mind blowing. Yeah. Well, it's one of the trade-offs of um, having a free election system, right? Like, mm-hmm. it's very difficult for us to. I mean, I don't know if we've tried or not. I'm imagine the CIA has or something like that. <laughs> but oh tried to meddle in like Russian stuff. But because it's such an authoritarian state and everyone's bought off by either, you know, during the Soviet Union, the communists or in today by Vladimir Putin, like you, it's very difficult to influence people. Whereas in the American system, you know, you get elected by the people and that's how it should be. You also are more vulnerable to influence by outsiders. Super, super PACs, PACs, lobbyists. It's, Yeah. We'll get into that. We, we got a good series on that coming up. But, uh, you know, you mentioned yeah. the CIA. I, I think that's important to talk about now with, you know, I didn't know this, but the U.S. was one of the last major powers to form an intelligence agency, the OSS in World War II. Later became the CIA. Um, I think it was under the Defense Act of 1947. Um, that's when the CIA officially became the CIA. Um and yeah, you want to talk about meddling in elections? Um, we could do a, a year-long series on CIA operations. That's all declassed now that we know about, where they um, went through and they influenced and subverted and worked in other uh, countries, you know, Latin America, Europe. One of the things I would say about the CIA, though, is just on a you know on an official website type jet definition, they do have. Um, different directorates that are responsible for, you know, one directorate is responsible for analyzing just information that is basically public knowledge that you can get looking at satellite images, reading the news, collecting, just collecting and sorting through all that data to provide briefs. And then there's the operation side, which is, okay, we're going to go through and we're going to um, try and influence these people through whatever means we can. We are going to, um, you know, like during the Cold War, we were tapping Russian phones in East Germany. We were, you know, there's the Bridge of Spies. There's all there's all these operations where the CIA was heavily involved um, with trying to influence external information, um, and then also internally briefing the president um, on what is going on so that they can make the best decision. So, um, the best decision now by whose decision they thought it was the best decision. You know, that's a, that's a topic for another day. You know, was it the CIA's best decision? Or was it the best interest of the people who knows? I, you know, I don't want to end up on a watch list, so I'll stop there. Right. Right. Now, it, it, particularly with regards to information warfare, it, there's a lot of really good case studies in Europe of all, all declassified now of where, the CIA built these media outlets to uh, compete with the Russians. I think mm-hmm. Thomas Kidd in his book, Active Measures, discusses some of the magazines that the CIA was publishing, you know, in the in the height of the Cold War in like the 50s and 60s in Europe. And it was just to like influence the populace on the virtues of liberal democracy versus uh communism and but when it came out radio free europe was also another one of those things but when it came out that those were all owned and controlled by the cia they were instantaneously condemned which 
to me seems odd. Like I, maybe maybe it's more palatable for Americans to say like, "Hey, a private entity is you know doing this thing," of which Radio Free Europe. I don't I don't know if it's private or not, but it's definitely not run by the CIA anymore. Uh, for quite some time, it hasn't been. But uh, it's like we should. I feel like it's a good thing to promote liberal democracy uh, in in other countries. So so I just, I think the reason why, it's almost like this political version of the uncanny valley. I don't know if you've ever heard of that phenomenon, but it basically says like the more lifelike and human-like something is, like the more we don't like it and we're afraid of it. So it's kind of the same thing. It's like when we thought that, you know, Radio Free America and they were preaching all these values, we're like, that's great. But as soon as we find out, like, it's not authentic and real, it's not this real homegrown, you know, native love of liberal democracy, instantly people are like, oh, I hate it. It's fake. Ah, It's the U.S. They're, you know, and instantly our guard goes up. We're like, it's not real. And our guard goes. Colin, that's that's a really good point, man, because I think... Anytime in information war, if you're trying to pose as someone that you're not, you inherently run the risk of uh, being not just ineffectual, but counterproductive. And to Mm -hmm. your point about, you know, maybe like what the CIA was doing in the Cold War was it was a good thing. But when when people find out that it's fake, it doesn't matter if it's true. It's the sources not true and therefore we don't like it anymore exactly completely delegitimizes it so you know there's a ton we can talk about with the cia the point is they were an organization that was sole that sole purpose is to affect in intelligence and information externally to our adversaries or sometimes our allies and then internally analyze that information and provide recommendations so that is that's why it's important, and it's to, and it, I think it captures this idea that you know since World War II with technology and the proliferation of information, the U.S. government was like, we got to get a hold of this. This is something that's important, and we have to have something that can help us. Um, which brings us to today. So, you know, the term fake news is like ubiquitous with Donald Trump. Everybody, as soon as you say the words fake news, everyone has like an image of Donald Trump like muttering out fake news and I can't do an imitation of it, but you get the idea. Everyone you heard it in their news. head. You are fake. <laughs> You're fake news with, you know, pointing the, the big finger out at them. Everyone has that image in their head. Um, and that is, and what I want to say about fake news is it is, it is quite literally everywhere. It is. And it's not just like the U S and Russia. It is almost everybody with a cell phone now or has access to the internet or some form of technology can become their own independent entity and actor. They can basically be a state actor and just start throwing out information and suddenly it gets picked up and like it's a story and then suddenly it's fake. I mean, how many times have you ever been online and you're like, hold on, this is big, but is it true? And then it's not true or you don't want to believe it. And it turns out it was true. Um, that's kind of the the pickle we're in today. It's like there's so much information, we just can't sift through what's real and what's not. Yeah. It's kind of funny how we thought um, with the rise of the internet that fake news would go away because it was a problem pre-internet. 
And the exact opposite has occurred. It's become more of a problem. And the main thing to keep in mind for fake news is it is increasingly hard or it is more difficult to be lied to if you have multiple means of receiving information. So mm-hmm. from a from a misinformation, disinformation standpoint, uh, what I've learned studying this topic is if you are only paying attention to one or two you know, sources for your news, you are being lied to. I guarantee it. Like there's not a single outlet that is right 100% of the time. Not commenting on whether or not it's intentional. The That would depend on the outlet. But, you know, for the Russians, um, uh, oh, this is a great example to talk about the, the protocols of the elders of Zion. <laughs> Can there I talk about that right now? Go ahead, do it. I want to hear it. Okay, cool. So the Protocols of the Elders of Zion was a Russian forgery. So one of the KGB's favorite things to do is produce fake documents and then put them out into what we would call the information space, uh, you know, put them out into the media. They would get picked up by these third-party media resources. They'd be super sensational and they would uh they would just get repeated so it's it's no longer like the russians like hey i got this document from the russians that's not it it's uh, and i don't recall for the elders of the protocols of zion how it got into western media sources but like if a British newspaper talks about it and then an American p- newspaper sees it in the British newspaper and then they talk about it and then a French newspaper sees it in the American newspaper and then they talk about it and they're like, oh, well, I'm confirming it from the Americans and the mm-hmm. British. So it's got to be legit. Like when in reality it was a KGB forgery, the whole point of the elders of the protocols of Zion was to falsely claim that there was a Jewish conspiracy to take over the world. Does that sound familiar? <laughs> <laughs> so I think that it's one of it's one of the oldest conspiracy theories out there and it was absolutely started by the Russians. So it's interesting, you know, some of the the effectiveness of fake news I think can be determined by elements of like either bias or truth. So like that is an old, so they probably were like, Hey, we know that this takes root and there's a history of, you know, some sort of anti-Semitism somewhere in the U S or the rest of Western Europe, obviously like, obviously Germany, um, you know, in the U S which the Hugh, you know, the HUAC and McCarthy both were accused at different points of anti-Semitism or some of their, um, you know, their hearings and their comments, there was bits of anti-Semitism. And so the KGB could have easily just been like, hey, look, this is going to take fire. If we capture that bias that exists, sprinkle in a few elements of truth, like, hey, have you noticed this? And, you know, suddenly it's like this emotional response and it just takes root and suddenly it's fact. Um, So I think that's an element of fake news where if you take, oh, hey, did you see this picture of, you know, such and such? And it's like, here's kind of a fake story sprinkled into something that really happened. Or, and it, it, it can be small. It doesn't have to be big. But like that becomes very believable and people at an emotional level attach to it. And like 
suddenly are willing to die for it. And they believe it with everything that they have. And this this is kind of anti-Semitism and just conspiracy theories in general. Right. I, uh, I, I, I just used that one because you brought it up. But, you know, it, speaking of conspiracy theories, and I don't mean to cut you off, but there's, <clears throat> you know, there's this idea that people want to believe that there's somebody in control. Um, so like as the world kind of spirals out of control, it's like surely not everyone can be this incompetent. There's no way that we could let the economy do this. And it's like, well, there's this actually, you know, like, so conspiracies can kind of take root. Um, when you just say like, well, actually there's a reason for that. And it's the, even if it's a malevolent force at work, people are like, okay, that makes sense. Surely because somebody's in control. Yeah. It's, I had a friend tell me one time that conspiracy theorists were the happiest people in the world. And (laughs) it's because uh, everything makes sense to them. They know the insider secret that nobody else does and, and everything's explained. And to your point, like the reality, that's, that is the emotional reason for believing conspiracy theories. Uh, it's because we as human beings desperately want to understand the world around us and we're happier if we do. And it is very difficult for us to understand or for us to accept the fact that maybe, maybe everything is kind of chaotic, even at the highest levels of decision-making and, uh, simple explanations are very hard to come by. Uh, you know, people talk about the conspiracy theory of, of nine 11, you know, was an inside job and they think like, there's no way that a random terrorist organization could have done this. You know, it had to have been the government, you know, trying to get more oil, blah, 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 whatever variation of the conspiracy theory you want to believe. When in the reality is, is like, it's absolutely possible that the U S government could have just missed it. As a matter of fact, like, uh, the CIA, not to criticize them too much, <laughs> but the, you know, when the Russians got the bomb, like, I think like months, like two or three months prior to the Russians getting the their first nuclear weapon and test successfully testing it, the CIA came out with a report. They're like, Russians won't get the bomb for another five years. And then like three months later, <laughs> they blew up a bomb. <laughs> and it's like, guys, like this happens all the time. Like super smart people are wrong all the time. The and Afghan to, army can hold on and defeat the Taliban. Yeah. yeah. Like incompetency is a way better explanation for why things take place than its opposite supreme mastery over the affairs of men. Like one of those is way more likely than the other. <laughs> if you start having conversations and start looking at you know, smart people become very incompetent when you just start dealing with this many layers of variability in the world. I mean, you think about it now, like eight or however many billions, seven point whatever billion people exist. A lot more of them now have access to the internet and are reachable. So it is, that has made the world insanely chaotic. It's no longer like countries that, you know, there's gatekeepers you have to go through these formal means to interact with each other. It's like, no, like some guy can interact with somebody else on the other side of the world and influence them effectively. And that just breeds chaos. You throw on a bunch of bureaucracy, some self-interest, 
lots of incompetency and you've got yourself a powder keg. Yeah. And that, and that kind of brings me back to the point that I wanted to make before we move on. And that is the best way that you can protect yourself or counter disinformation, like personally, you know, for your own life is to have multiple sources of information. The, and, and to be completely honest, like I would strongly recommend towards most Americans, like read the news source that you don't agree with. Not so that you can be exposed and have an open mind. Like I, there's some merit in that, but that's not really why I'm saying that. The reason why I'm saying that is that both, you know, the two typical examples, Fox News and CNN, uh, which I'm not endorsing either of them, by the way, I'm just giving them as easy examples here. That is like, they're going to cover the same exact event from two completely different angles. And we as active American citizens should be able to read both of those angles and go, okay, I now am better equipped to determine for myself what I think occurred and then hold that loosely, you know? Uh, it's the, we run into problems as Americans when my only source of information is CNN or my only source of information is Fox news. That's, that's where division comes in. That's where misinformation and disinformation come in. That's when, that's when we start losing the information war. Yeah. And and just in the interest of time, let's, let's kind of move on past fake news and, and we've already touched on how it's being fought today, but like specifically to the Russian-Ukrainian conflict, um, you know, we've we've said it over and over. Like, look, technology has caused an in, a proliferation of, in, of information availability. You can get basically any information you want at the touch of your fingertips. You have a cell phone. You can record something. You can upload it. It is on the internet, and everyone can see it very quickly. So, so specific to Ukraine, you know, their strategy. I believe just from observation and following this on social media and the news and, you know, whatever, whatever knowledge I have of information warfare, I look at it and I see Ukraine, they realize that in order for them, they can't just beat the Russians probably in a, in a straight up conventional style warfare. They need outside help. They need to beat the Russians in the information space, in the information warfare, uh, because, um, you know, they don't have enough bullets to do it. So what they're going to do is as the Russians are invading, you know, I, I imagine, you know, think like a World War II movie where you've got U.S. bombers flying over Germany and you just see explosions of anti-aircraft guns going off everywhere in flak. They're just throwing out so much information and hoping some of it sticks to A, rally their own cause, you know, around NATO and Ukrainians, um, rally their their side, and at the same time, cause demoralization amongst the Russians. So like everybody has seen like Snake Island, the ghost of Kiev, you know, the, the ghost of Kiev, a completely fabricated story. It was, if you watch the, right. the, the quote videos of it, it is literally taken from a video game, a good video game. I'll give them that, but it's a video game. And then, <laughs> you know, people picked up on it and they ran with it and man, they loved it, it to the point that a, Sitting U.S. Congressman Adam Kinzinger reposted a picture of a clearly photoshopped 
Ghost of Kiev. And if you look up the guy, it's it's his name Sam Hyde. He's a you quote YouTube comedian. Like Adam Kinzinger would have nothing to do with Sam Hyde, and he reposted a picture of right. him. Like, right. That's the point of you know it's fake news. They just threw it out there, hoping that they would get support, and they did. A lot of people bought into it, and they were like, "Hey, let's send." And they were able to you know rally some support in the U.S. And the U.S. sent them a bunch of money, and the populace was okay with it, right. which they needed to fight. So I don't know. What are your thoughts on that? No, I think Ukraine has done a infinitely better job shaping the narrative in their favor mm-hmm. than Russia has. Russia focused on shaping its narrative internally, justifying its quote-unquote special military operation to its own citizens. They've done that very well. Polling's indicated that it enjoys broad popular support within Russia. But yet, they did not win the narrative outside of Russia. Ukraine has won that narrative to the point that, uh, you know, by and large in the West in particular, we're very, very supportive of Ukraine and not Russia uh, I mean, there's also some inherent advantages. They're the ones being invaded, right? Mm-hmm. So oh, yeah. there's this underdog thing that even if Ukraine didn't say a word, they probably still would enjoy broad popular support. But the, you know, what we saw on Twitter, the ghost of Kiev, um, you know, heck, selling stickers on Amazon. Uh, <laughs> these these ways of uh, uh, of mobilizing popular support it's absolutely produced effects. I mean, kind of like what we discussed in an earlier episode, Russia had, you know, 150, 175,000 troops on a border and the Ukrainians like spanked them. Like literally nobody thought that that was going to happen and they did it. And part of that, you know, Napoleon's saying, what is it? The moral is to the physical is three to one or something like that. Mm -hmm. The Ukrainians enjoyed a superior moral, uh, advantage and uh, it definitely translated in Battlefield's success at least at least in the first few months yeah I would say in the first few weeks it, it definitely improved their outcome uh, you know and then you know the unit to the definition where information warfare you know in that space it's internal external Russia like you said focused internally Ukraine is outward let's demoralize let's you know let's rally our troops let's rally support from the west um which i think they've done and then you know there's obviously like the you know twitter and just random people um uploading stuff but there's also the legacy media really getting behind this and saying you know Zelensky's like a he's like a you know i, I don't know what the, the right adjective is for hero. He's, he's he's a hero he is a hero i think um i heard george bush give a talk and he he ba- he basically called him the modern day Churchill. Don't necessarily agree with that, but um, he, you know, sung his it's praises. It's hard to beat Churchill. It's hard to beat him. You know, I, we won't get into that whole thing, but I, he he's a hero in the eyes of many in the West, and the legacy media is really ratcheting up that. So you have both an online presence of, you know, people just looking at their phones, and then you hear, you know, interviews, and he's getting a lot of, um, FaceTime with leaders um, outside of Ukraine and in NATO. Um, and, you know, there's even journalists that have gone out to Ukraine and are like hunkered down, um, you know, in the fight against the Russians. So I think their strategy has been effective. It has definitely at a minimum 
prolonged the conflict in their favor and it has allowed Mm -hmm. them extra survival. How long Mm -hmm. that'll last, we'll see. You know, clearly the Russians are making gains in the East and the South. We'll see where that goes, but it has absolutely been in their favor. And they, I feel like have won that battle in the information uh, space. Yeah. Uh, One, one important aspect, particularly about Zelensky is people believe what they want to believe. Mm-hmm. And that that statement in and of itself could be an entire episode. Just talking about human beings don't make decisions based on ra- rational, logical analysis. The It influences, but that's not why we make decisions. We make decisions based on emotional uh, reasons. We, we believe what we want to believe. And it is very difficult to get someone to disbelieve something that they really want to believe. Mm -hmm. When it comes to President Zelensky, we live in a day and age of where we desperately need leadership. The, you know, even here in the United States where we pride ourselves being an individualistic society, uh, like a hyper individualistic society, we still want to look up to somebody and go, that's my, that's my guy. That's my girl. Like that's, you know, they represent us. And when it, when it comes to Zelensky, he made one critical decision that, you know, unless he really punts it in the stands will define his legacy throughout history. And that one decision was to just simply stay in Kiev. Like I'm going to stay here with my people I'm not going to be the corrupt politician that a bunch of people accuse Ukrainians to be. I'm going to stay and I'm going to fight. And even for us non-Ukrainians, everyone's just kind of was like, wow, like that still exists in this world. That's the kind of leader that I want. Therefore, I respect the daylights out of Zelensky for just staying with his people. That, you know, talking about information war, you can't beat that. Like that is like Vladimir Putin is uh, like he will never be that. Uh, he will always be this guy hanging out in his freaking DACA somewhere or uh, hanging out in I, Sochi. I got to disagree like that. with that. He flew. So I think Zelensky, that whole staying in Kiev was absolutely a lot of photo ops. He did stay in the city, but I mean, come oh, on, yeah. he wasn't, he, he was in the city. I agree with that, but I think it was overblown his level of, it was not like he's on the front line. And to be fair, Vladimir Putin did no. fly to Chechnya. He was absolutely, I mean, he took a jet. He flew in at the backseat of a jet into Chechnya, into some of these countries. So he would be a guy like that. And that's why the Russians do respect him. And I, yeah, Zelensky was in Kiev, but a lot of it was just photo ops for propaganda and information. The same reason Vladimir Putin flew to Chechnya was, Hey, I want to be here. Yeah. Like, no, you're right. Like they did a, they did an interview with some CNN anchor or not anchor, but a CNN correspondent. I don't know what the right way to phrase it is in like the bunker in Kiev. That was absolutely a photo op, but it was true. Like he was in Kiev. Right. And the point being about, you know, Putin, flying in the backseat of a jet those were equally photo opt like you no know, i agree i 
going and flying in a jet to a republic that you're literally killing their people because they no longer want to be a part of your country. Like for me as an American, that, that garners zero respect, right? Like if Putin flew to the Donbass tomorrow and was on the front lines, I would still be like, dude, like you're not a hero of your people. Like Ukraine's not a threat to you. Uh, what if you were a Russian citizen? You know, you're invading them. They didn't invade you. Right, I mean, obviously, my Russian? biases would be different if I was a Russian citizen. <laughs> yeah, uh, like yes, they, Putin, yeah, he's they would be. Man. You know, I would. Right, but and I guess the point I'm trying to make here is that the I do believe in the eyes of the the world writ large, right? And I think you know the proof is in the pudding. There's a reason why the world is supporting, by and large, uh, supporting Ukraine and not Putin here, uh, and. And it's because like he he made the right call. He made a call that we that we all respect, made a call that we don't respect. And the information that flows from that is just it's rooted in the reality of the decisions that they made. If that makes any sense. It does. Colin, thank you for bringing us uh, this this awesome history of information warfare. Uh, we definitely talked a lot about, uh, you know, information warfare, just generally speaking, uh, and kind of tying that into to what's going on in Russia, Ukraine now. For me, you know, one of the reasons why we I wanted to do this episode is, you know, information warfare and, and misinformation and disinformation, it's all over the news mm-hmm. and we don't know the history behind it. And mm-hmm. we barely scratched the surface in this episode on how uh, information gets used both for like military conflict and, and political purposes as well. Uh, you know, if you're a part of our Patreon page, you can hit us up and ask what kind of resources we recommend. Uh, but generally speaking, I think it's important for our listeners to understand. And what's been really helpful for me as I've been learning about this topic, uh, preparing for this episode, is that you, you know, average American citizen, are absolutely the target of information warfare. Right. So first, mm-hmm. recognizing that you're a part of this, whether you realize it or not, is huge. <laughs> Secondly, uh, it's not always a government like the conspiracy theorists would have. You know, some of them would have you believe like the American government is manipulating this. Like, you know, no, as a matter you know, we have something called the Smith Munt Act where it's illegal for uh, it's a crime to uh, for the American government entity to lie to. Uh, to the American people, Congress and the media. Um, and you know, that's, yeah, that's illegal. So the, I'm sure someone would say, well, that wouldn't stop some people like, okay, that we can save that counter argument for a different episode. But anyway, point (laughs) being, you are absolutely a part of this process. And secondly, it's not always a government. Like it could be somebody just trying to make a buck, right? The the fake news out on Twitter, they're just trying to get clicks. They're just trying to they're trying to go viral. And the most sensational thing, I remember on YouTube once I saw a video. It was like of a sinking U.S. carrier in the Taiwan Strait, 
and it had like over a million views. And it's like, that's not real. That didn't that's happen. A movie. <laughs> but now that entity, it's yeah, fake news. but now that entity has a million subscribers on YouTube and they generate revenue from that. Mm-hmm. So uh, it's not, we're not trying to make, everyone into a conspiracy theorist rather we're trying to arm you with a little bit of background on why these things occur and then using the current crisis in russia ukraine to say like they it has significant effects uh can affect the economy can affect conflict in a part of the world uh and we will we will only continue to see this more and more right this this war is being fought on many fronts economic military information. You're right. And it's being fought by a lot of different actors. Hey, and with that, that concludes our Russia-Ukraine series, the very first series here on the Loins of History. Uh, it's been a it's been a special uh, occasion that we get to, you know, I'll, to be honest to our listeners, the genesis for doing this podcast was by and large to Colin and I having a lot of conversations about Russia, Ukraine, agreeing in a lot of places, disagreeing in a lot of places. Uh, and we were like, let's do a podcast. on this." <laughs> Tragic events worldwide, but it did create a podcast. So that's one other positive of this conflict. <laughs> yeah. And, and we were like, you know, it's just blatantly obvious that there's a lack of historical understanding that's leading to some of the misunderstandings that's, surrounding this this uh this conflict so uh yeah i guess this not to be too terribly sentimental but this this series will hold a near and dear place to my heart absolutely but uh so what's the next step next what's the uh, next series all right so i'm gonna give a teaser and if you want more details hit us up on our patreon page our next series is going to be an overview of political systems And it's going to be a doozy because we're not going to shy away from the truth (laughs) about all of them. As midterms approached, we felt like this was a very good. uh, Go ahead. So this is a very good uh, segue into the midterms coming up. So we figured we'd we'd arm you with the knowledge required before you go into the voting booth. So, yeah, that that is everything we have for you on this episode of the Loins of History. Thanks for joining us and we look forward to seeing you all next week.